Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. In today's podcast, we are talking about women in Indonesia's parliament and the chances for female candidates to get elected in next year's legislative elections, which will be held on the 17th of April 2019. In that election, around 40% of all candidates competing at the national level will be women. That is a higher proportion than in any of the four elections held since the onset of democracy in 1998. So what are the reasons behind this increase in female candidates? What are the chances of these women to actually get elected? And if they do win a seat, are these women likely to become a voice for a stronger recognition of women's rights in Indonesia? In today's podcast, I will discuss these and other questions about women's representation with Ella Priatini, an Indonesian journalist and a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia in Perth. Ella is currently in the final stages of her PhD and recently published some of her research findings about women's representation in Asian parliaments in the journal Contemporary Politics. Ella, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dirk. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be in this program. Why don't we get straight into it? Um, we have had a number of gender-related topics on this podcast in the past, but yeah. we have not yet spoken in any great detail about women in parliament. So. Yeah. In my introduction, I mentioned that about 40% of candidates in the upcoming legislative election next year will be women. Yeah. And I guess from the outside, that number doesn't sound too bad. 40% actually mm-hmm. sounds reasonably good. Mm-hmm. But these are, of course, only the candidates, and we don't know yet how many of them will actually get elected. So what is the situation in the current parliament? And maybe to extend that a little bit also in cabinet, how many female legislators do we currently have in the House of mm-hmm. Representatives and how many women are in President Jacobi's cabinet? When it comes to women's performance in legislative elections, I have the data here. Like in 2004, we have 32% of female candidates, right? And the winning rate is 2.4%. Hmm. So we compare the number of women elected and the number of women uh, running. So we got that number 2.4%, right? Yeah, yeah. In 2009, we're looking at female candidates comprise 35% of the total candidates. Uh, and the winning rates increased slightly, only 0.1% to 2.5%. In, in terms of uh, winning rates. In 2014... We see another hike in female candidates, uh, women being candidates, 37%. Mm -hmm. uh, That's 3% uh, increase. But the winning rates only increase Mm 1.4%. As of 1st of October 2018, according to the IPU, Interparliamentary Union, Indonesia ranks 103rd in the world in terms of women's parliamentary representation with only 19.8% share of women in the DPR or about 111 out of uh, 560 MPs. Mm, And among Southeast Asian countries, uh, Indonesia's performance in electing female representatives is lower than Vietnam. Mm-hmm. which currently sits in the 62nd uh, position 
and Singapore in the 77th and Cambodia in 98. And the top champion in this regard is Timor-Leste, sitting in the 34th position in the world. So Indonesia currently only outperform Malaysia, Brunei, uh, Myanmar and Thailand in Southeast Asian countries. And in the cabinet, uh, we have eight female ministers out of 34, so that's 23.5%. So it's not too bad, but in the other sense, it, we have homeworks to do. Do you have any figures of how female representation is at the provincial and at the local level, at the district level? Yeah, we have so far two uh, elected female governors. Uh, one was Ratu Atut Hosia of Bandan. Mm-hmm. She got elected in 2006 and re-elected in 2011. And Kofifa adds the number into two when she secured the victory in East Java. In This is this was his, uh, her third attempt. So she's very persistent. <laughs> and when it comes to the Pilkada, the third round of regional elections, which was held in June to, uh, 2018, showed an increase of women's electability. So the number shows that uh, out of 94 women who ran for local government offices, 31 or 33 percent were elected. So this is 2 percent higher than previous elections for local politics. So overall, various records of the results of the 2018 regional elections shows that women's electability continues to increase, even though the rate is quite gradual. This increase is positive indication for women's representation as local political leaders. But we cannot just compare women in parliament, women in cabinet, and women as local leaders as if they're having the same battlefield. They have different battlefields and they have different uh, challenges, if I may say, in terms of becoming the leaders of political leaders. So what's interesting is that when we look into parliament, they have particular challenges and it's very confusing for you know people who are not really familiar with the Indonesian electoral politics that is it something that I get to do more with the family or the social status or culture or religion even. So before we turn to the Indonesian case can you tell us a little bit what are the main obstacles for greater gender parity in parliaments around the world? Yes so we have the socioeconomic cluster and then political institutions cluster and lastly is cultural or ideological cluster. So the first explanation focuses on how the process of modernization, which covers socioeconomic aspects, promotes cultural change that leads to greater numerical women's representation. The second one relates to political institutional settings ranging from the electoral systems to the gender quota provisions. The last explanation deals with the cultural or more ideological barriers that often harm women's political nomination. So the idea is that people might not vote for women because it's against their religious beliefs or cultural uh, customs in a way that fits the voters' socioeconomic or socio-demographic condition. But the results that I'm looking into Indonesian experience is that I it's not as simple as one, you know, one particular cause explains the whole dynamics in Indonesian electoral politics. I don't see it that way. Mm. I see a rather composition of variables that explains better the outcomes of uh, Indonesia in terms of voting for women. Yeah, 
So apart from socioeconomic growth, you mentioned cultural factors and you mentioned institutional factors. If you could expand just a little bit on the institutional factors, why does the electoral system, for example, matter? Um, why is it important? Why do certain systems provide advantages for women or better chances for women to get elected, whereas others are more disadvantages? Yes, from the institutional explanation, from that angle, we're looking at political parties' uh, responsibilities in nominating women, winnable women, and to nurture their cadres to become uh, candidates in the upcoming elections. Mm. So that's one crucial aspect from this explanation, this cluster of explanation. But the other one is as important, that is the gender quota implementation. So we're looking at legislated gender quota. So parties are obliged to promote and nominate at least 30% of the candidates being women. Mm-hmm. And they have to put women at least in each three uh, on the candidate list. So one, two, three, either one or two or three should be one for women. Mm-hmm. And four, five, six, there should be one women in uh, and etc. Mm-hmm. It gets really detailed and supported by the Electoral Commission as well. Because the last election in 2014, those parties who cannot fulfill their obligation to nominate uh, women to 30% minimum will be disqualified. So parties are, you know, I don't want to get disqualified, so I have to promote women, I have to nominate women. That's one way to push political parties to promote uh, women to become legislative members. But as we're coming back to the portion where the political parties should take responsibilities and being sincere with their responsibilities, that is what we still look into our biggest gap, if I may say it. So this is what I did. I interviewed the political party success team who participated in 2004, 2009, 2014, right? Mm-hmm. So I asked them, what hinders you from promoting women on top of your candidates list? Why don't you do that more often? And the answer would be like quite generic, but they will be saying the problem is that we can't find good quality women who are really, you know, electable in a way that they're going to win. We hardly find that pool of women who can participate and, and join our party. So it's it, it has nothing to do with religion, for example. Like is it is Islam-based parties are finding it more difficult compared to the secularist parties or the secular. It, it has nothing to do with that. Quite frankly, with you, that the parties' obstacles are just quite the same. They share the same interests and they also sharing the same concerns when it comes to finding you know winnable women. Mm. They're explanation surrounding the issues of money politics, how expensive it is. It is so notoriously expensive. And it, it's hard to say that we, we should fix this issue. We, 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 should, we don't know exactly where, where to start, where to begin. It's like a, the issue is repeating itself. You know, like we, we had this before in 2014. We can't find the pool of uh, eligible women who are very excited to participate in politics. There's one interviewee from Golkar saying that it's like women asking for the quota, but once it's there, we hardly find them. You know, <laughs> like so they want this, but where are they? You know, let's 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 do this, but they 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 don't exist. But I asked the same question to Noshabani Kajasunkana, who is a 
a very renowned women's activist and she said because it's so bloody expensive she's saying mm. like it's so expensive we can't afford it activists can't run because they can't afford it they knew they don't want they're gonna lose mm. Mm. so out of the various factors that you have mentioned now it sounds to me as if you're saying that the the, the cost of campaigning the expenses that candidates incur during the campaigns are the most important factor that prevents a better gender parity in parliament? Mm -hmm. Or does it sort of interact with these other factors that you mentioned, socioeconomic status, cultural obstacles to voting yes. patterns, perhaps? I just need to clarify that money is not everything. People will say, no, money is not everything. Of course, money is not everything, but it determines the level of the game, right? Mm. There's one respondent that I've been speaking, uh, I've been talking to, and then she's from PKB, right? Mm -hmm. The and National Awakening from Party. her socioeconomic status, I would say that she's not from the halves, right? And she told me her experience about how she collect her funds to finance his, uh, for, sorry, for her campaign. Her experience is like this. Maybe this is very unique, though. So, she told me, it's the political party leaders that determines women's success to some extent. Why? Because to those who cannot afford financial support from husband or family or from herself to run in an election, it is very important that your party leaders know that you are winnable, hmm. right? It's because political party leaders uh, in PKB, in this case, is like, you know, treating the uh, survey of electability of candidates, right? Before becoming candidates, they have this survey. Mm. Can you believe that? And they spend heaps of money yeah. for surveying which candidates, sorry, which potential candidates should be the candidate, right? Mm. And then she was on the short list. And then that was before they announced the candidate lists, you know, the sorry, the candidate lists, all the candidate lists uh, needs to be approved by the party leaders. And then she was on the, on the short list. And then she approached the party leader and saying that I don't have money. I only have this certain amount of money and saying, but I want to win and I will, I will win for PKB. And he was like, okay, you're going to win. Make sure that you're going to win. I'll, I'll give you a loan. So he gave her a loan. This is her account. Hmm. He gave her a loan of 400 million. 400 million rupees is around, what, 40,000 Australian dollars? And then she got that money and she she sell all her assets and her family, you know, giving loan to her as well. And she sells everything that she, she owns. Hmm. And then she win by, I think it's about 300 votes more than the nearest competitor to her, which is also from PKB and a man. Uh -huh. And she said, I win. I, she only got 12,000 votes. Right, 12,000 votes, and the uh, margin was only 300. And then she told me that I got it, but this other fellow who seemed so very upset because she only went over him for 300 votes, hmm. saying that, okay, why don't we uh, split the, the years? So you got hmm. three years, and I got two years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because the period is for five years. Hmm. So even women who got the seat, who got elected, are still being nagged by mm. male party colleague mm -hmm. because there's a sense of this is not only for PKB. Don't get me wrong. There's another part. There's another respondent from PAN Pan. Mm. 
Hmm. Also saying that the same treatment, she got like uh, 1,000 votes more than the other guy. And then this guy keeps saying, you should split the years with me. <laughs> so they, they, it's like, what? <laughs> you you deserve it? You own it? You have it, you know? But it doesn't work that way, apparently. So women, once they got elected as well, they need to be, you know, sit in their chair tightly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Otherwise, they're going to lose it. <laughs> and so much money, efforts, and, you know, all the sacrifice that they, they made. So again, coming back to the point where is it only about money? No, money is not everything, but it's really crucial. Mm. The story that you said that candidates have to sell all their belongings or take up yeah. loans in order to be able to compete, that's um, well known. There are many examples that have been reported. And of course, that then plays into the the other problem that once candidates do get elected they have to repay those expenses somehow yeah. and that opens you know the floodgates for other problems such as corruption etc which brings me to the question of you know if we look beyond the numbers if we look at the actual candidates who made it into parliament have yeah. have they actually been advocates for better representation for women for gender issues, not only in electoral politics, but also in other issues, or yeah. because they are sort of roped into the mains game, in a sense, um, mm. do they just become politicians like everyone else? And ultimately, for the broader issue of you know gender representation, it doesn't really matter whether you have men or women, they're, they're all the same. Mm. So if you sort of assess the track record of the women who have served in parliament over the last, say, 20 years or so, Have they helped the cause? Uh, I'd like to avoid blanket statement in this question because I think that when we look into women's substantive representation, as you, this is a question, uh, are they substantially representing women or not? Hmm. Are they substantially different uh, compared to uh, male MPs? Hmm. We have to look into a specific period that we're interested in. For example, we might say, well, the last, Parliament is not quite so. Many drafts for bills that are very important for women and children are not being passed. Mm -hmm. So there are a huge, uh, you know, uh, unfinished business when it comes to uh, passing bills. But if you compare with previous uh, periods, such as in 2004, 2009, we saw the The, the biggest achievement for female MPs to pass bills that are, that are re closely related to uh, women's issues. Okay. So uh, apparently that different women entered parliament, right? Different types of women with different backgrounds uh, in terms of their social and political backgrounds. So the results are, as you can expect, quite different. So what we're looking at here is that When we want more women to represent women, because uh, half of the population is women, we don't see that as a black and white. A very clear example here is that uh, I got a story from my respondent saying that once I'm there, it's not about I can do whatever I want. You know, like the, the party controls MPs strongly. So, for example, there's one story, a respondent saying, there's one occasion when they this commission needs to elect one of the BOMN, 
So as the commissioner for the BRMN, very prestigious position. For a state-owned enterprise. Yeah. Yes. And then they have their presentation, right? And mm. one female candidate is really good. She knows what she's saying. She knows what her plans are and everything. And then coming back to the party caucus and the party leader said, nope, we go with the male candidate. So at that point, she's saying, if I can have my own say, I will pick her, but I can't. So their hands are tied, in other words, saying that uh, I, I, I wish I can uh, pick that woman because she's really good. She's, she's better than anyone else, but she can't. So in that sense, we can understand if women are not performing really authoritatively, you know, like they have the capacity, but they can't exercise it mm-hmm. because the party control is very strong. There's, mm-hmm. I don't know, is it apologetic or what, but I think... <laughs> I'm I'm just listening to what, you know, my respondents are saying about their experiences about being a female MP in Indonesian parliament is not as like, okay, I'm going to represent women, I'm going to do this and that. Mm. You get, you know, you get you get stuck sometimes because the party leaders wants the other way around. So if you want to see better women's interests being served by the MPs, not only the female MPs, we need to uh, look into the whole, you know, approach, a more collective and a holistic approach. Mm. Like we need to make sure that the party leaders are also interested with this topic or with this issue. And is this going to be good for their image as well? Otherwise, it will be like, oh, that's not my priority and we're not going to pass the bill. So issues like that is really crucial in Indonesian parliament. Maybe it's important for the voters, but... If the you know party leaders are not considering it as Im- as much as important, then no, it's not going to pass it. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking ahead to next year's election, um, if you scrutinize the list of candidates who will run in next year's election, do you see any change in the you know composition of this crop of women who are running, or is it are there not significant changes? Um, of course, there are a lot of women candidates who have family ties to yeah. male politicians who are somehow already involved. Yeah, um, yeah. Will this pattern continue or do you see that there is a sort of you know, a new generation of women who might be changing things a little bit? It's quite early to say, but I think the prediction will be uh, stagnant. It's because we don't see significant change in terms of how voters are trying to assess their uh, future representatives for parliament. We don't see that. Mm. There's no you know, dramatic change in terms of how the voters as well as the, um, the candidates are looking at this, uh, this race in a way that we don't see much difference in how we tackle money politics in a way that we don't see much difference in terms of uh, promoting and being transparent in terms of nominating candidates. There's a big issue with uh, political nomination here. Mm. And that's the, the starting point of why we elect this type of, you know, this type of legislators, because it's so mysterious from the beginning. <laughs> and it's also mysterious in a way they got their seats, like, okay. And there's also frauds on, on process of doing the counting and everything. Mm. So we don't we don't see much in terms of groundbreaking, you know, changes in terms of 
uh, democracy, electoral democracy in Indonesia. It's it's bleak to say, but I think PSI might be a good alternative. I don't know, but that's the Indonesian be, Solidarity Party. That's, yeah, that's a new yeah, party course, that is led a, by a, a woman. There's a new study yeah. by Perludem, uh, published by Perludem, saying that only PSI and Democrat. Partai Demokrat got a really transparent, uh, in their website, they, they they explain and they open, you know, having this open recruitment for candidates, only these two parties out of mm. 16 national parties. Mm. Let me finish up by asking you about leadership at the highest level and how you rate the chances for a woman to um, get really to the top. Indonesia has been hailed in the past as one of the few Muslim democracies that have had a female president. But Megawati, when she was president between 2001 and 2004, she was, of course, not elected. Um, yeah. And given that we have seen a rising tide of conservatism, do you think if there was a you know widely accepted candidate that she would be able mm. to make it to the top? Or do you think the structural obstacles through the you know the way the parties work, mm. the socioeconomic factors, etc., are just not conducive for a woman to eventually become president again? I think you're right. Uh, Megawati was never been elected. She ran for a couple of times and lost. Mm. And um, if you're asking about women's uh, future in becoming the top leader in Indonesia, I think promising developments are occurring at the moment. We're looking at local leaders, more local, uh, more female local leaders are being elected, and they outperform male local leaders sometimes. I can see that the importance of political party support for women's nomination, but also one cannot forget that if a, a woman, if she wants to become the president in Indonesia, she needs to work harder than men. That's how I'm going to say it. Like they they have uh, persistence. Some some areas in Indonesia do have persistence. We've seen uh, in 2014 election, for example, legislative election, there are seven provinces without female MPs. Mm. So we're seeing that this seven province is quite huge in terms of numbers. And why? Not even one women mm. got elected, right? Mm. So there are areas in Indonesia, and this is not only about, are these areas only for, you know, only occupied by Muslims? No, there are also uh, provinces dominated by non-Muslims didn't elect for women MPs. So in other words, I'm saying that Women is to work harder to get elected in no matter, you know, uh, race that they're participating in. But also women who are successful in the local levels have a promising opportunity mm-hmm. for running into, you know, a national level. So because it's really good that we have this technology to spread information about the success of a mayor in Surabaya, for example, how successful she has been in mm. her two terms. And and it's really good. It's really like something that we need to praise because she changed uh, significantly the, the city into becoming a better city. Mm. And that might be a promising, you know, a promising uh, politician in, in the coming years. But heaven knows, you need political party support, you need uh, the cultural acceptance, you also need the financial support to run because it's so expensive. In other words, the hope is still there, Mm. but it's not going to be as simple as uh, winning the local elections for sure. Not I'm saying that local election is simple or (laughs) easy, but 
you have to convince, you know, 34 provinces where you've seen seven out of them uh, didn't elect a single woman mm. to DPR. Yeah. So there's a huge challenge there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm sure we could extend this conversation <laughs> longer and longer, <laughs> but I think we have indeed run out of time by now. So, yeah, thank you very much for these insights, Ella. Um, that was um, excellent. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, so that was Ella Priatini from the University of Western Australia in Perth speaking with Dirk Thompson on the Talking Indonesia podcast. There will be one more Talking Indonesia podcast before the end of the year. Please join us again for that last episode for 2018 when it is released on the 20th of December. And don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Alternatively, you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and until next time. Thank you.